VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's the producer. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a shout to get into the queue and on the air to discuss the topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86 26, and as you heard Brian Medore mention in the newscast, Alex Nahook did draw back into the Colorado Avalanche roster for last night's Game 1 opener against Edmonton in the Western Conference Final. Looked good out there, had an assist, a beauty assist at that. Boy, the games are late, but had a boy, Alex. Great to see him out there playing in the playoffs. What a thrill for his friends and especially his family. It's just amazing stuff. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably realize that I'm pretty wrapped up in tennis. I've long been a fan of tennis. Decades. You know, a couple of my great pals are also big tennis fans. And you know, every era thinks that they've seen the very best players of all time. So I saw someone say, you know, how lucky are we to be watching the heyday, in particular men's tennis. So the big three, the Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. And Nadal versus Djokovic last night was a classic. Absolute classic at the French Open. So, I mean, I don't know how many people want to talk about any sports particular, tennis in fact, but you know, is it the 80s is the heyday with the McEnroe, Connors, and Borg, and then here comes Lendl, and on the women's side, of course, Navratilova, probably the finest champion, either men or women of all time. She's got 59 majors because she played a lot of doubles and mixed doubles as well as being the best singles player for a generation. So, you know, where is the heyday of tennis? But our last Canadian representative at the French Open, Leila Fernandez, was Hosted yesterday in a three-set thriller as well. Anywho, let's go. All right, today in history, it was first for the first time published in the Emergency Journal. Pardon me, Emergency Medicine Journal was the Heimlich maneuver. You know, to save choking victims. That was back in 1974. I had a quick flick through the Emergency Medicine Journal. Some interesting stuff in there, and I've made mention of this in the past, and I'll do it again right now. You know, I know some teachers in schools do a great job with you know life lessons, including first aid. It seems to me that it should be mandatory when you're in K-12 for at least a couple of times to get some first aid training. It's that real-life applications that are going to make a big difference. We've heard some stories in the past where one young fella, he learned the Heimlich in school and consequently saved his buddy. They were out playing in the woods or down by the pond or wherever they were, and the young fellow was choking, and the little boy knew the Heimlich and saved his pal. So these types of real-life issues are probably pretty important in school. And this is a great story, and this is more about high school. There's a lady named Amy Smith. She teaches at College Avenue secondary school in Woodstock, Ontario. She's looking at her high school students, and knowing that, of course, the three R's are important, you have to deliver the curriculum as it's put forward, but some preparation for after school, after you're done with school. And it's a great time to get the high school students. So she's talking about the ABCs of money management. So she brought in experts from a variety of fields. Car sales, the talk about the pitfalls of payday loans, how to invest your money, how to look for a realtor, what a, what a mortgage broker does, a financial advisor, all these types of things. Nice way to pepper some real-life stuff into the minds of the high school students because before long, in a blink of an eye, they'll be doing exactly that. So get them while you have them as a captive audience. So that's a good one. want to say good morning, congratulations to uh, music specialist and teacher librarian Andrea Lane Gardner 
and the grade six children at Elizabeth Park Elementary and local singer-songwriter Damien Follett. They released, released a new video yesterday called Just Be You Song. So it was really driven by the students, but of course Damien is a lovely man, and he worked directly with them. They produced this video, so they persevered through COVID, and we talk a lot about the differences that sometimes divide us, when in fact they should be doing more to unify us, an understanding of who people are, what they're all about, where they come from, what makes them unique. And so Just Be You is probably the best piece of advice you can give someone in grade six, eh? You know, putting on a brave face or just posturing to fit in and or falling for some peer pressure when it's not you and the little red alarms are going off and your belly is banging because you know you're doing something wrong. Just be yourself. It's solid advice for a grade six student, or I would imagine for any student. And congratulations to Miss Lane Gardner, her students in grade six at Elizabeth Park Elementary, and certainly Mr. Follis. Okay, what's this there? So there's some $430,000 put forward by the federal government to talk about healthy eating. Now, where did I put this particular story? All right, so it's going to be implemented in some eight communities around the province, and we know that there's an issue regarding our diet, and that's not to be <laughs> condemning anybody because my diet's probably not what it should be. So the project is called Great Things in Store, Retail Partnerships for Better Food Access, led by Food First and Health, great group, Josh, me and his team there. So... To encourage healthy eating is one thing, but we even know that the child and youth advocate at the time, Jackie Lake Cavanaugh, put forward a report that it's one thing to talk about and to encourage healthy eating habits, but then we knew that there were so many schools in the province weren't even compliant with the rules regarding the access to th the certain types of healthy options in the school. So if, you want, if you're one of the eight communities, of which I don't know what, what they are because I didn't click the link this morning as I was breezing through, but inside the healthy eating world, Yesterday, it was once again discussed or debated on the floor of the House of Assembly, is the coming tax on sugary drinks to be implemented on the 1st of September of this year. Okay, so let's get down to some of the brass tax about what it includes. The tax is 20, is 20 cents per liter, includes bottled soda, sports and energy drinks, fruit-flavored drinks, frozen concentrated juices, flavored powders, syrups, soda fountain drinks, and slushes. There are exemptions, including diet beverages, which is, I think, the most curious exemption. Because we know full well that artificially sweetened stuff is not any better for you, health-wise, than sugary-treated beverages. So I don't really get it. It also goes on to talk about 100% natural fruit juice, vegetable juices, uh, beverages prepared for the consumer at the point of sale, like for instance at a coffee shop, alcoholic beverages, uh, medical and therapeutic beverages, milk, including chocolate milk, yogurt, beverages in containers less than 75 millimeters, and fortified plant-based drinks are also exempt from the tax. So, okay, the government will say that this is an effort for to encourage people to make better choices, healthier choices, when in fact the diet drink is not necessarily any healthier for you. But they also go on to say that it's expected to raise $9 million annually. In some form, that kind of admits that it's not going to have the impact for so-called better choices being made at the shop. Because if you've got a forecasted number in mind, I would imagine it's based on annual sales in the past. So they think it's going to raise somewhere in the neighborhood of $9 million. In other jurisdictions where they've tried this, it hasn't necessarily worked the way government intended it to work. The places where there have been better choices made is because the tax was applied at the point of manufacturing, at production. So if the producers were forced to add less sugar to the variety of beverages, then the consumer would be buying a product that is less sweetened than they would have in years past. And it's worked. 
as opposed to thinking that people all of a sudden aren't going to drink Pepsi and they're going to buy milk. Well, people buy Pepsi rather than milk sometimes because they like Pepsi more than they like milk. So is this going to do anything as opposed to just adding an additional burden? Or would people simply say, all right, Coke Zero it is. Diet 7-Up it is because no tax on it, the 20 cents per liter, but they're not necessarily doing themselves any additional favors, but here comes the sugary tax drink you want to talk about. We can do it. And in the healthy eating world, you know, the province talks about doubling food production in the next number of years. This one story, and we've given you the numbers based on the number of farms there, the fewest number of farms in any province in the country. In 1951, two years after we joined Confederation and the census was taken, there was 3,626 farms in this province. Now it's in and around the neighborhood of 410. Remarkable stuff. So that's one thing. And with the increased cost of feed, fuel, and fertilizer, many small farmers are wondering about the long-term viability of their operations. Their margins are pretty thin to begin with. So we can talk about the, the issues that government has brought forward, you know, with the plant transplants and the seed programs and the additional 64,000 hectares of land, all the things they're trying to do to see more and more business models come forward, whether it be from root vegetables all the way to cattle. But here's a story that I wish I had to talk about a little bit more in the past. And this is about not only the future of small farm operations in the province, but some of the hurdles that they face that are imposed by the government. So, da, 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 had this right here somewhere. But Future of farms in Newfoundland Labrador. Okay. So... There's no mandatory crop rotation, number one. And of course, that just means more costs associated with some of the pesticides and fungicides to keep the soil at for the next farming season. But this is the most curious one of all time. There is basically a Nova Scotia-owned agricultural operation that has a monopoly on the egg business. It's country ribbon. So what th- how this happens is really mind-boggling to me. So you're allowed to own up to 99 chickens to produce eggs, but you're only basically allowed, unless you go through some massive hurdles, sell them at local farmers markets, for instance. The 99 chicken number is pretty much imposed because uh, Country Ribbon gets to tell the farmers what they can and cannot do just in that world alone. So how could it possibly be when we've got so few, so many fewer farms, some of the enormous costs that they are absorbing now, based on a variety of issues, supply chain, whether it be for their equipment, and or, yes, the war, the breadbasket of Europe. But these things are real. And so even if they wanted to expand their operations to have more and more chickens to get involved in some of these businesses, there's a litmus test put forward by a privately owned business that in large part, I guess if you just do the rough calculations as opposed to cash transfers or tax subsidies or breaks to the company, given the fact that they've got the market virtually cornered, there's a couple of exemptions, but virtually cornered, that is sort of a government leg up. And I really can't for the life of me understand how and wh- how that works like that. There was a farmer from the province's west coast. His name is Chris Bruce. He's the person who put forward this opinion piece. It's on the CBC website if you want to have a look. It's pretty eye-opening. And Mr. Bruce, if you're listening while you take a little break during your farming operations this morning, we'd love to have you on the show to talk about what's going on. Okay. We know now, as it was announced yesterday, a part of the Energy NL conference ongoing here in the city, that the West White Rose extension has been greenlit by Synovus, Suncor, and their various partners. 
It's good news for people in the industry. Of course it is. The number of jobs created is pretty massive. You know, when the government through the Federal Oil and Gas Recovery Fund floated the company $41.5 million to keep 331 jobs alive while the project was stalled back in 2020, I'm not so sure it's satisfied with keeping all of those jobs in play. But now that there's a $3.2 billion investment and some 1,500 jobs, direct and indirect, and a couple of hundred uh, permanent platform jobs when they go into first oil production in the extension. All right. The company also goes on to say, the companies, that they were able to de-risk their stake in the project. So there's going to be a floating, a floating royalty regime that happens here for us. So under the new regime, the provincial government will get more money than originally agreed if oil trades at more than $90 US per barrel. It gets less if it trades at 75 US or less per barrel. I don't know how common a feature that is in negotiating royalty regimes, and I think we can and should be still talking about the relevance and or the need or lack thereof for equity stake in any of these projects. But the company has de-risked the project, so they say. It safeguards the project's economics in periods of low commodity prices. You know, curiously, and I think this is a, a bizarre juxtaposition, the same people that were yelling at me email and otherwise, where I think that making sure small farms endure this particular season and the spike in the feed, fuel, and fertilizer this year, they think it's wrong. If you can't stand on your own two legs, too bad about you, close up shop, that's enough. But they're applauding, like the oil and gas recovery front, they're applauding money that goes towards the oil and gas companies and other big operations. They are all for some subsidies floated their way. But at the exact same time, not in support of where their food is grown. It's just, anyway, so good news for the oil industry. Lots of activities, more exploration. Equinor is out there exploring again. Apparently ExxonMobil is going at it again. The pending close of the CNLOPB land sales. People are telling me there's reason to be bullish or optimistic about the outcome there. You want to take it on? We can do it. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? I was up late watching hockey. Let's get this going. Okay. So people, certainly in this area, are following along with the spate of shootings and stabbings and firebombings. And the police have made four arrests connected with the whatever's going on between the criminal networks here. Then you'll see a lot of people, and rightfully so, wondering how it works when they're presented in front of a judge. And these are pretty violent charges, violent crimes. You know, there are allegations at this point, fine. But pretty violent stuff. I mean, open a fire on an apartment building, fire bombing a home, you know, stabbings on George Street, and three of the four have already been released on bail. Now, there's probably some pretty strict conditions, and their family or relatives have ponied up the money. But you just wonder what it takes and what type of crimes would require people to be remanded. Now, I know that there's something in the neighborhood of 60 or 70 percent of the inmates at Her Majesty's Penitentiary haven't been found guilty on anything. They're simply on remand. So it's a wonder to me that if we're having judges have their hand forced to make these types of decisions based on capacity versus who's a risk to public safety, and I, you would think that someone who's willing to drive around in the middle of the night and open fire on an apartment building might indeed be a dangerous person. Just thinking out loud. But that's a issue that we can tackle if you are so inclined. All right. The deadline is quickly approaching for bids to be put forward to purchase some of the assets of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of St. John. Some 34 parishes are going to be liquidated or portions thereof.
There's already been a ruling on St. Kevin's. We know that there's a Toronto-based developers that have been knocking on the door at St. Vons. You know, I do feel bad for the prisoners. I really do. They're paying for the sins of others. And absolutely, the victims of Mount Cashel are due the compensation. The sale is forecasted to raise some $50 million. The question that I think many people are asking, and it's the right one in my personal opinion, is how and why would the parishioners all of a sudden potentially lose their place of worship and the Vatican doing nothing and the Vatican, nobody really knows exactly how much money the Vatican has, whether it be in real estate holdings and or cash on hand in the Vatican Bank, but it's in the tens of billions of dollars. And yet, they're faithful. The people who by and large built and maintained these churches are left holding and footing the bill. There's something patently wrong with that. So the deadline is tomorrow for the bids to be put forward, and there'll be a lot of people waiting with bated breath. And even if you're not a member of the Catholic Church, we know that the Church plays a prominent role in many communities. And the people who are faithful congregants, it just seems so patently unfair that they may indeed, you know, not only scrambling to put forward some monies to aid in a bid to preserve their church, and one person in particular apparently has put forward their entirety of their life savings, but there goes the Vatican just turning a blind eye as they always have. And also today is the opportunity for public sector workers, including healthcare workers and teachers, to return to the job because the vaccine mandate has been dropped. That includes Memorial University as well. So I was kind of surprised that there was such a small number of people who were not vaccinated, but I guess I shouldn't be because the percentage of folks 18 plus in this province with two shots of the primary series is well into the 90s. So those impacted will be able to return today. You know, I wonder what type of welcome or what kind of awkward silences there may be. And that's not to say that it's a, an effort to divide the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. I have zero interest in that. But social interactions are awkward at the best of times. So I've, they have the opportunity to go back to work today. And now we also know that the federal government has say, said that the travel requirements for fully vaccinated Canadians, domestic travel, will be extended until at least the end of this month. Reasons why? I guess they fall back on the public health comments that they've offered in the past, even though nothing's going to change between now and the end of June, but that mandate has been extended. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune on the go before we come back and speak with you. Today in 1968, pretty famous day in the rock era, Mrs. Robinson reached number one from Simon and Garfunkel. Pretty great track. When we come back, you add to the soundtrack of Open Line. Don't go away. Well, welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one and say good morning to Father Jamie Corab. Good morning, Jamie. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm happy to have you on the show. I just, during the break, saw the message that you had sent along regarding the fact that you and your daughter are going to shave for the brave. Tell us about why. Yeah, so, Patty, this started, so Young Adult Cancers Canada, or the acronym is YAC. Um, I did a Booze, Bowls, and Charity Goals charity event with them three summers ago at Barron Park. Basically, it's lawn bowling and having some beverages, and it was a fundraiser for Young Adult Cancer Canada. Um, there, probably in about March, I was contacted by a friend of mine, uh, seemed if I'd be interested in doing Shave for the Brave. And my initial response was no, because I have an ugly shaved head. But um, I said, no, I'm, I'm definitely up for it, given that you know I've got a little bit of a history with Yak. So came home to my family, my wife and two daughters, and said, are you okay if dad shaves his head? Because I did shave my beard during the pandemic. It didn't go over well in my house. So the first response from my eight-year-old, Kendra, was, I'll do it with you. 
and I, I was taken back by it. So they asked us to do the shave week, which was in April, but we were tied up and couldn't do it. And uh, over the last, you know, three or four weeks, month, months even, uh, I asked my daughter, are you sure this is what you want to do? So she said, yes, I want to shave my head. I want to donate my hair to charity uh, or to a young girl or, or a boy that might need hair. And I want to fundraise money. And so that's how it started. And, you know, we got our fundraising off about eight days ago, and it's been fantastic so far. It's remarkable. You know, I've been to many of the public shaves, whether it be at the Avalon Mall or otherwise. It's one thing to see the adults coming through, but when the young people are willing to do that, you know, to talk about making the awareness and raise some money, it's pretty heartwarming stuff. And I can tell you from experience that doing it with your own child is going to be a pretty rewarding experience. Jeff Eaton will tell you it's the most powerful haircut of your life, and it absolutely is that. And I had an opportunity to do it with my youngest. Me and Jack did it together. I think he's done it like five times. But the time that we did it together, you know, I was smiling ear to ear, but it was all I could do to fight back the tears of just, you know, sitting there looking at him. And I could feel the the razor taking my big curly locks off my pretty round shaped head. And it's just amazing stuff. So what do you think it's going to mean for you and Kendra? And how do you guys talk about what you're what you're attempting to do here, raising money and then to pull off the shave? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you know, just your first comment, I talked about it at the council meeting there two weeks ago, and I almost had trouble finishing my statement on it. Uh, so, you know, it will be very powerful, but, you know, you know, one thing with Kendra, I wanted to expose her to a number of things, you know, we, you know, whether it be donating to food banks or, you know, letting, you know, letting you know the equalities we have here in the city and province and, uh, you know, other people that are, you know, less fortunate enough. So doing what we can to try to help where we can. So she's always had that kind of charitable mind set uh, from something she's exposed to. Uh, so, you know, right now we fundraise about $4,000. Uh, we set a goal for five, and our shave date is on June 10th. So we still have about, well, 10 days left being the first of June. So, you know, she she realizes what she's done. And I think, you know, every day she comes home and she tells me, you know, my friend said this to me or my friend's mom said this. So I think she realizes what she's doing is a big thing. And, uh, you know, to what you said about Jeff, Jeff said this is the most powerful, impact, and powerful, empowering haircut she'll ever have. So this is something that, you know, she'll remember her. And, uh, you know, as a father, I, I don't think you could ask more from your kids. I'm just so proud of her wanting to, to do this with me. Yeah, and you know, before long, you'll see some of that spirit uh, sprinkle around her classroom with her friends, maybe at school and or just in the neighborhood, because there's something to be said for, you know, setting an example. And how old is Kendra? Sorry. Eight? Kendra, she's in grade three. So with the school part, we're actually doing it in her school. We, we wanted to do it in the auditorium, but given the cohorts with school and whatnot, uh, they said they'd rather do it in the classroom, which is fine. So they're going to broadcast it to all the other classrooms we're going to put it on facebook live on my social media uh so it will be a great event and uh, she's really looking forward to it she said one moment where she's like you know i'm not going to have any hair and then she quickly turned around and said but you know what some other little girl's going to have it and we're going to fundraise a lot of money so she, the maturity for you know an eight-year-old is just mind-blowing i think it's great uh, really inspiring story so i know where you can donate but go ahead and give the folks if they'd like to bring you over the five thousand dollar mark to raise money for you and kendra's upcoming shave where do they go yeah so if you go to my uh, twitter or facebook any of my social medias really uh the link is up there and you can donate through young adult cancer canada uh that's the easiest way to do it if someone's not familiar don't you know trust a website which it is a secure website uh you can reach out to me directly i've got an e-transfer email set up that uh, i can take it there so again we're over four we're trying to get the five 
Uh, I'd love to blow that right out of the water because the uh, Young Adult Cancer Canada does a lot of great work. And just if someone's not sure what they do, they basically help young adults living with cancer, through cancer, and, you know, once they're in remission and beyond cancer. Uh, they connect them. They bring them out of isolation. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus on, on kids with cancer and, you know, obviously older people, but there's that gap in the middle and yet fills that void. So it's a fantastic organization and uh, we're, myself and Kendra, are just ecstatic to help them out in any way we can. Good on the both of you. Say hello to Kendra for me and good luck with this, Jamie. Thank you. Well done. Thank you, Take care. Yeah, sometimes, you know, I mean, inevitably someone says, well, why do you ask about politics? Well, sometimes, you know, some of the conversations can be uplifting. And the shape of the Brave Book, Jeff Eaton and his team, they filled a gap that was wide. So lots of attention to uh, youth and oncology and cancer and support systems and the like. And, of course, we know that virtually every single family in the, in the province and the country will be impacted by cancer at some point, unfortunately so. But young adults, you know, you're just getting your life started, maybe just uh, developing a long-term relationship, starting a family, starting your career, and then the diagnosis. So whether it be some of the retreats that they host, uh, the Young Adult Cancer Canada, that is, and some other activities and fundraising and awareness and presentations that Jeff makes, it's a great organization. Okay. Okay, very quickly. Like yesterday, we talked about the fact that the federal government has tabled some new gun control legislation. A national freeze on handguns. Purchase, sale, importation, transfer of handguns in Canada. You know, there's obviously going to be a way where we have to talk about the illegal handguns, where they come from, and what we need to do about it. There's also some pretty important stuff with uh, red flags. If you have a, if you've been involved in domestic violence, we take away your, your firearm. You have criminal harassment charges, we take it away. They've increased the penalties for smuggling and trafficking of firearms, a red flag law, that if you're deemed to be a danger to yourself or others, then you'll have to turn over your firearm to law enforcement. And, of course, the debate takes on many different fields and flares, and some of it uh, totally reasonable, like what we do at the border. Completely understand how we deal with the criminal element and their use of guns, even though Sats Canada says 6% of handgun homicides are inside the gangland world as opposed to the other areas of society. Look, I just had the unfortunate opportunity to see a social media thread before we came back from the break. And it was from actually an American congresswoman. And she goes on to say that, you know, Russia is really mad at America right now. And with defenseless Canadian citizens, what would we do if we were invaded by Russia? Man, that's where we kind of, you know, have a hard time having realistic, mature, pragmatic discussions, debates about some of these issues. It's contentious. It's emotional. And public policy is tricky at the very best of times. But if you want to talk about it, let's see if we can't get it down to, you know, things that will make a positive difference in public safety versus what happens if Russia invades and I don't have a gun. You know, anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. Today's a good day to get on the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211 or elsewhere. It's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Shirley. You're on the air. Good morning. We are sitting in Woody Point in our travel trailer from Edmonton, Alberta. And the only um, internet connection or radio was your station. So we've been sitting here loving the discussion. And we would really like to have the contact number for uh, Kendra 
and her father, I believe, that were shaving their heads for kids with cancer. Sure, I can uh, send you some in contact information for uh, uh, Jamie Korab. That's the fellow's name who called. It's a great story, you know. To do it by yourself is one thing, but to do it with your own child is going to be an amazing experience for Jamie and his uh, great three daughter, Kendra. I tell you what, I, w- I won't give out his number live on the air, but when we are done t- talking, I'll put you on hold and Dave Williams can give you some information. Plus, you can call uh, Shave for the Brave, Young Adult Cancer Canada, directly, and they might be able to help you out. Do you have a pen? I can give you a number for those folks. We do. Yeah. So it's uh, area code 709 579 7325. Okay. Well, I tell you, you know, you're calling from one of the most beautiful parts of the province out on Woody Point. Have you been anywhere else? Uh, we started off in Port of Bath, and first we drove all the way across Canada, and then we took the, uh, the ferry to Port of Basque and then stayed at Caudroy um, RV and Trailer Park, and now we're at Woody Point, and it's pouring rain it's supposed to snow <laughs> I, I would but i can't apologize for the weather no. it's been pretty nice uh, in the recent past especially over the weekend a couple of nice days but welcome to the province we hope you have a great time uh coming from edmonton i spent uh, the bulk of the 90s living in alberta met my wife there my children were born in hinton alberta as a matter of fact oh, are you oiler fans Oh, yes, indeed. Is that right, hey? I mean, the series got off to a barn burner. So it's kind of racetrack hockey last night with an 8-6 uh, victory for Colorado. What do you make of the Oilers' chances against a pretty deep, strong team like the Avalanche? Well, we're certainly hoping that they came back after that loss to Calgary and, and knocked it out of the park. Um, it's too bad we don't have any new, Newfoundland-born boys. Uh, give us more strength on our team like the Avalanche do. Absolutely right. Good point there by your husband. 100% yeah. our Alex Nohook, who's actually a family friend of ours. We we're all thrilled for young Alex. But it must be pretty special. We don't get to watch a whole lot of West Coast games because of the time difference, right? You have to stay up pretty late to watch the Oilers play. Uh, many of my right. pals are Oilers fans, but it must be a real luxury as someone living in Alberta, cheering for the Oilers, to have, who's going to prove out to be one of the best hockey players of a generation, Connor McDavid. He's remarkable to watch. Probably my favorite player in the league, even though I'm not an Edmonton fan. What a thrill to watch that guy. <laughs> well, they have all picked up their skates and really put on a show now for the playoffs. They're really delighting in watching them when we can get a TV connection. <laughs> well, listen, uh, enjoy the rest of your stay in the province. I will put you on hold. David Williams will give you some contact information for Mr. Korab directly. Uh, enjoy yourselves. Uh, go Oilers, go. Stay in touch with the show, Shirley. Nice to have you on. Thank you so very much. It's been awesome to listen to you. Terrific. Thanks, Shirley. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. She's on hold, and we'll get her some info. Okay, so I mentioned I read an opinion piece by a young farmer, Chris Bruce. He wants to stay in the business. There's lots of hurdles that they face, whether it be some explosion of costs for feed, fuel, and fertilizer, but some other interesting facets, which really don't make a lot of sense to me. But join us online, number two, is indeed Mr. Bruce. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Patty? I'm doing awesome. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I read your opinion piece, and some of the issues you point to, not just about straight-up costs, but even like crop rotation, the eggs world, it's all very confusing yeah. to me. Let's start with how you're managing and what you're doing to deal with some of the explosion in cost. 
Uh, well, so the the type of farming that I'm doing is what some folks would call regenerative, I guess. Um, and the idea with that is um, that the whole design of things is that uh, we don't have external inputs other than uh, a bit of kelp. <laughs> um, so this means that we've planted a bunch of different things together or let them come up naturally um, and kept pesticides, fungicides, fertilizers off the property and are working on maintaining healthy soil. That's sort of the, the kind of central premise of how to do the thing. Um, so the farm looks a lot different than a lot of others. Um, we, we made these giant culture beds, which is basically taking your woody debris from, uh, from the cleared land and burying it, uh, and then remounting the earth on top of that. And that's all part of the process of trying to preserve and, and enhance the soil that, uh, that the crops are coming from. So for, for my general overhead, the price of gas and the like hasn't changed, but not every farm is is doing that, and, and so it's worth noting that there's there's a lot of pain around. Uh, what are you growing, Chris? So hops was kind of the initial main crop, and they're still going, and, and that's going well. Uh, but I also have a couple beehives, and if uh, and I made it through the winter, which is great. Uh, and then hopefully by the end of the year, I'll have a couple more. Um, there's many raspberries, uh, mushrooms that are coming up on the farm. Uh, so it, it would be a, a mixed production model, I think is kind of the industry term, uh, with a little bit of everything trying to, you know, make it all work. And healthy soil, healthy yield. Okay, let's get into some of the issues that you speak to in your piece. And the fact that crop rotations are not mandatory. What's the real-life implication of that? So uh, uh, broad strokes, uh, big agriculture erodes soil health uh, most of the time. There are some really uh, exciting examples that are happening around the country, um, uh, in particular Manitoba. Uh, I know they're doing a lot of rotational grazing. Um, and this is basically uh, the, the idea where the animals are on the land, uh, moving around, uh, uh, grazing things down pretty intensely, uh, pooping everywhere, going on to the next spot, and then that soil is then left to basically kind of reconstitute and regrow, and the result of that is farms that are preserving their soil every year and increasing it rather than depleting the nutrients in the soil. Um, so, I mean, that's you know, kind of the the hurdle that that farmers face is when you drive a tractor on a field, it compacts the soil. When you're monocropping, there's going to be a, a really high disease pressure for for those single crops. You need to spray it. That then puts pressure on the natural plants that would come up to help things out. And the sort of net result is the depletion of soil. 
there's a sentence that jumps off the page in your piece once again. It says, I cannot begin to express how little our province cares about small farms. And there's a variety of uh, issues you point to in that. Let's talk about the magic number 99. You know, the age-old question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, is kind of an irrelevant question for a small-scale farm because there's one large operator basically has a monopoly and drives the quota-related matter. That's Country Ribbon. What's the 99 reference to chickens? Right. So within the supply management legislation, um, there's different thresholds set for how many animals you're allowed to raise. Um, And that's the case with, you know, every province that we're not unique to that. Um, That's sort of how Canadian agriculture works. Uh, The difference comes in where that threshold is set. Um, and every other province is higher, so small farms can have more chickens. Uh, and it varies per per province. Uh, I think the highest now is probably Ontario with with three thousand uh, kind of like free rangey chickens that you can have, um, and that's chickens that are are not raised in the kind of confined pens and in like a factory farm sort of setting. Uh, this is chickens that are part of a, a small or medium-sized farm. Maybe they're rotationally moved around, or maybe it's a kind of a, a chicken enclosure, or you know, some type of non-industrial setup. Um, and now, like three thousand birds is like a lot. Um, so you know, even that is like that is just by necessity at least semi-industrial. Um, but there's, I think a there's a number somewhere where, uh, you know, it, it's kind of opening up the door for small and medium producers without destroying the price of chicken. Um, but we just have selected the lowest number and haven't changed that for a very long time. What else can you point to that indicates your thought that the province doesn't care about small farms? What else should we be considering? Well, and, and I, so I do need to say that it's not like a unique to Newfoundland thing. Um, over the past 100 years, you know, give or take, the, the agricultural landscape has really fundamentally transformed. Um, farms are now bigger. Um, they seem to employ less people because tractors and the like. <laughs> um, they, there are fewer of them. Um, there's some new uh, data out from the uh, things called the agricultural census uh, with like StatScan counts the farms, um, and it's a, it's a similar picture all across the country um, of, of the loss of the number of farms operating every year and the number of acres in production is even down. Um, and the farms that are left are, are much, much bigger uh, and these quota-style farms. So, you, you know, it's it's not like a just-here problem. It is, uh, it is an everywhere problem. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a big problem to tackle. 
You know, I read out the numbers from 1951 in the census. There was uh, 2,600 or 3,600 farms down to in and around 400 today. We all yeah. know the issues re- regarding the importation of the goods and services that we need, and food in particular. Some 90% is imported. You know, that makes it very fundamental to say these things out loud, and food security, food uh, reliability of supply, price point. Just, I, I mean, not to be, you know, speaking in dire terms, but what do you think the reality is for the future of small farms? You know that the mega farm has really pushed aside the, the mom and pop. My grandfather was a farmer. What do you think the future holds for small farms in provinces like ours, with the fewest farms of any province in the country? I'm, I mean, the most optimistic I can be is that we're at the bottom point, and it's going to start turning around from here. Um. <laughs> you know, I, 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 we would need help for that to happen. Um, and, you know, like, I think the government wants to help, but, you know, maybe the people around the table aren't providing the right advice or, you know, the, the nature of uh, government investment generally is kind of focused on big rather than little. Um, uh, You know, so, I mean, like, truly, it couldn't get too much worse. Like, you know, like, I suppose we have maybe another five or ten years of small farms failing and closing. But then we're almost out. So almost by definition, it would need to start going in the other direction. Um, But that's pretty bad. I'm going to take that as somehow encouraging <laughs> that, we've, that we've maybe reached Excellent. the bottom. Uh, Chris, I really appreciate you making time for the show because no better way to find out what's going on in one industry or another than to speak with someone who actually works in it versus me trying to read and understand and learn about these issues. It's always helpful when people like yourself make time for the show. I really appreciate it. Would you like to say anything else? Oh, and that I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk about it um, and that uh, – if um, your listeners uh, want to support their local farms, um, you, you know, go and, and buy their food and see what you can do to help them and share their Facebook stuff and go to their markets and, you know, try and maybe figure out uh, with the producers directly how we can all maybe bring down the cost of production and eating and make life a little bit more livable for everyone. Appreciate the time, Chris. Uh, Good luck this season. Stay in touch. Thanks, buddy. You too. You too, man. Bye-bye. All right. Thank Bye. you, I meant to say. That's Chris Bruce, small farmer out on the province's west coast. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Ooh, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you today? Great today. How about you? I'm good, my buddy. I'm good. A bit wet, but good. Yep. Um, I'm calling today. Um, I'm from Lower Island Cove, vice president of the AYLA out here. And uh, this year for Come Home Year, we decided, our committee and our community decided that we were going to, uh, for the first time ever, have a concert in the park. What is AYLA, or what was the acronym, I'm sorry? AYLA, Adult Youth Leisure Association. Cool. Okay. Yep. And we decided to have a concert in the park this year. Our community and our committee decided this is the first time we're going to try it. So it's on Saturday, July 23rd, starting at 5. And our lineup is um, the Navigators, Rum Ragged, Roadside Attractions, Somerset featuring Billy Sharp or Billy and the Bruisers, and our very own boys, the Shade Connection. 
We also have beer tents and concession stands for food and whatnot or whatever. So I just called in today to get the word out, to spread the word. Our tickets are going, going pretty good. They're not going as we put them out early, but they're not going as fast. But now they're starting to go faster. I guess it's coming up sooner, and uh, and it's trying to. we're trying just to get to spread the word out and uh, see if we can get them all sold. You know what I'm saying? I do indeed know what you're saying. So when is the concert, sir? Uh, July the 23rd of uh, Saturday, July 23rd. You got a good lineup, and I tell you what, you know, I haven't been intimately involved or directly involved with pulling this stuff off, but some of my friends have. You know, it seems like, well, you just call a few bands and you, you get them all organized for the one day and away you go. This is a monumental effort. It, well, it is like we, we decided, um, Scott Percy now is the, the president of the building, and, and we decided to do this. And like I said, it's our first time doing it, and I think we jumped <laughs> we jumped really big because, I mean, it's really big. We didn't expect it to be so big, like I said, to booking the bands, to sound systems, to everything. You know, it's just it's very, very big, but it's going smoothly so far, and we hope that it will uh, continue going smoothly. We have a lot of volunteers to help us, which we do need. Like, like with every other concert around the island that, that has you need volunteers. Without volunteers, you got nothing. Yep. But if anybody need to contact myself or Scott, uh, Scott Bercy's number is 683-0001 and his email is sbercy012 at gmail.com and my number, Rick McNeil, is 584-3637 or rickmcneil at hotmail.com. Good stuff. I hope you sell it out. Of course, you know, between the infrastructure and the volunteers and the security and the sound system and the lights and everything else, it's yes. it's, it's a task. Uh, that it much is. I know for sure. So congratulations to you and Scott and everyone else involved, especially the volunteers to pull it off. Hopefully it's a raging success. Rick, uh, let us know how it goes. We will, Patty, and thank you very much for your time. Happy to do it. All the best. All right, bud. There you go. Bye-bye. Yes, one great thing about the summer season is, for, uh, for music lovers anyway, the opportunity to get out and see some live acts, which has been... A real void for a lot of people, and it certainly had a major impact on the artists themselves with the, you know, the opportunity for gigging is the way they make their money. Gone are the big opportunities for record sales to carry the day or some uh, downloads or listens on the Spotify's of the world or what have you, because they don't pay squat. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time left to speak with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jalen Spurl. You're on the air. Maybe. Line number one, Jalen, are you there? Hello. Hello. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. How are you? Doing great today. Thank you. How about you? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to have you on the show. We've exchanged a couple of messages on the old Twitter box about an upcoming uh, Jack Labrador Summit. But we, we were talking about mental health issues and advocates and what we're doing to have a public conversation. What's happening in your neck of the woods? For sure. So I just wanted to call in today to share a bit about the summit. So the summit is taking place this September 31st and October 1st. And it's going to be a virtual mental health summit led by youth for youth. Um, and it's open to Labrador youth ages 14 plus. So we're just trying to promote the opportunity right now for youth to really get involved either on our summit planning committee as leaders planning and developing the summit or registering as summit delegates to participate in the workshops, skill building sessions, et cetera, at the summit. 
How different and important is it for youth advocates to be speaking to youth about mental health matters versus, you know, someone who's representing a national organization who may not be in the same age demographic? Oh, it is crucial because, as we all know, we all have our own experiences and it differs so much as you go through life. So for youth, it really is important for them to hear from people with similar experiences to them. We hear and see the numbers, say, for instance, in the K-12 system. I don't know if we're doing a different or a better job, quote-unquote, of diagnosing, but we know the numbers of uh, young people dealing with anxiety, stress, depression. The numbers are really getting scary. You know, we hear the number all the time. It's one of five Canadians. What do you hear from youth in your area? Because we can talk about, you know, the day-to-day anxiety that we all feel and coping mechanisms or what have you, all the way to formal diagnosis. So what do you hear from youth where you live? So a lot of what I hear is definitely people knowing there's an issue and recognizing problems in their community, but not really being sure about what the next step to take is. Um, So that is sort of why we have been working on the Jack Labrador Summit, because the focus is more so to help people figure out what their next step can be. You know, when they see an issue or if they are struggling with their mental health, who can they reach out to? If they can't find supports, how can they make sure that those supports are available to them and others? So we've talked about, you know, the explosion in numbers at the Kids Help Phone and the Jacob Patterson Memorial Foundation had to close their wait list because so many people were reaching out for help. So where are you directing young people in particular when they need to know where the next steps are? So our summit is primarily focused on empowering the youth to advocate for themselves. So we focus on how they can reach out to adults in their community um, so that we don't necessarily always have like a set individual or a set resource that we point people to because we know sometimes there isn't even one there. Um, so our focus is to help them recognize what they can do as an individual more on a community level. The, you know, the want or the willingness to reach out is one of the most concerning things regarding the discussion regarding mental health is because we do talk about stigma a lot, and I think it's important. But given the fact that I think the conversation has become more open and public, that I hope what the outcome is is that we're eroding some of the stigma. So someone, say, my age may still have that pang of worry about coming forward and for people to know that I am struggling and to get a formal diagnosis because we know what that means for the level of embarrassment and or privacy or what have you. Does the conversation the way we're having it today, has it had a positive impact on youth where they're less fearful or worried about getting help if they need help versus what would be older generations and that that bit of family embarrassment and the stigma associated with getting a diagnosis? For sure. So it, it definitely seems like in my experience that the youth are so willing and they're calling out for help a lot of the time and it's just not there or available to them or they're just not sure um, where to go to so there's definitely the willingness to get help it's just the next step that we're sort of stuck up on (laughs) well i think we all are you know that's one of the things we've got a lot of good organizations that are you know, they're offering themselves as a backstop for government services, which are not what they need to be in the world of whether it be mental health, mental wellness, and or mental illness. So uh, did you want to talk about some of the government operations? Because that was part of the exchange that we had. 
yeah, so I pro- I don't think I'd like to delve too much okay, into that's that fine. right now. Sure. But I would really love to give some information out specifically about our summit, if that would be okay. That sounds great to me. So um, I just have like a few ways people could get involved. So if there is anyone who does want to take that next step or if they have been reaching out for help and haven't been able to find a resource, this might be a way to sort of advocate in your community for those things. Okay. Um, so youth ages 14 plus, they can join our summit planning committee. The deadline is June 30th. And then the registration deadline for summit delegates is July 30th. So anyone who participates in the summit will get to enjoy skill building sessions focused on advocacy, peer support. So really crucial topics for mental health and moving forward. And along with that, we're also hoping to connect with some guest speakers, to have wellness workshops, and we're also going to have youth-led collaboration sessions, which will be conversations with youth in Labrador where they can just talk about whatever they feel is most important regarding mental health in their community. And what's the contact info? So my email is jacklabradorsummit at gmail.com, or people can visit our Facebook page at jacklabradorsummit. Great stuff. I really appreciate you making time for the program. You're welcome to join us back on the air just prior to or on the heels of the summit to let us know how it went. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, Jalen. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Jalen Spurl. The Jack Labrador Summit. You can get more information. Simply send them an email, jacklabradorsummit at gmail.com, or check out their Facebook page. Okay, let's go. Iceberg Quest operates tours out of both St. John's and Twillingate. Join us on line number two. Is the owner, operator, and captain of the Iceberg Quest tour boats. That's Barry Rogers. Good morning, Captain. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay, Barry. How about you? Well, top shelf, top shelf. Good man, glad to hear it. So, you know, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about the tourism season. It looks like there's a lot of air traffic coming. Marine Atlantic numbers are huge. But before we get into some of the upsides, you know, I've seen you and other tour operators talking about what the increase in price, for instance, in diesel is meaning for your operations. Give us some context for years past and what it costs today. Well, uh, Patty, uh, no doubt it's a huge challenge this year. Uh, diesel, us others, you know, uh, diesel fuels practically went up, you know, uh, since uh, 2018, 2019 for us almost uh, three times, uh, you know, the cost. So it's significant, that's for sure. But I mean, you know, we had to, uh, uh, you know, start uh, mechanisms to try to offset that cost uh, as a business, for sure. Um, but, you know, um, there's many challenges in Newfoundland and Labrador. The fuel cost is just one of them, um, you know, but we're working around that as well. Um, we've uh, we've got a, you know, this year, this particular week right now for tourism is tourism week, of course, and uh reason for my call was try to uh, to uh, implore upon the people in Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada that, uh, you know, indeed it is tourism week and we're back and ready and uh uh, it's a time of rejoicing, really, when I see all their callers come in for, you know, there's festivals on the go and there's uh, concerts starting up throughout the province. So uh, it is certainly a time for celebration for stakeholders in Newfoundland and Labrador. And if there was ever an industry, well, I guess many industries need a, a solid rebound here from pandemic woes. But hospitality and tourism, I think, is one of the key areas that we need to be focused on here in the province. It's one of the real true growth industries. So what are you looking at for this uh, summer's traffic on your boats? 
Well, right now, I will tell you that uh, our online bookings, which most of our bookings are uh, done, you know, pre-sailing uh, time, uh, December, January, February, March this year, uh, I've never seen the bookings come in as strong. Uh, we've uh, got a, a, you know, a pretty strong seasons set up already uh, in pre-bookings. And, uh, I mean, we've had the blessing of an iceberg down in Tony Gateway there. And, uh, I mean, and that changes the old dynamics of uh, tourism, not just for Tony Gate in these areas, but certainly for the province. So icebergs is a, is a big plus here and a big draw card. And, uh, and you know, people, uh, people love to come here to see that. Um, but we're, we're, I must say, we're really uh, uh, booked up heavy this season, uh, doing well. I mean, uh, right up, we started uh, May 5th. And uh, right up to now, we've been uh, kind of flat out in a, in a way, uh, not up to our regular three, four trips a day, but we're doing one and two. And there's good numbers onto them. And, uh, you know, uh, the other challenge now we're dealing with this week, of course, is, is bad weather days uh, for the next three, four days. So there'll be no sales. So, you know, you're steady and a little bit back again, but that's the elements we're dealing with and the nature of the business. Yeah. I mean, I saw... I. I don't know if it was you who took the video or one of your, your guests out in Twilligate in that one particular iceberg. You know, again, for us, I've seen a lot of icebergs, but it never ceases to amaze me just how cool they are. But just imagine arriving here from New York City, never seen anything like it, and then, lo and behold, right in front of your very eyes, the thing crumbles into the water. That was some video. Oh, my son, that was something else for sure. It was one of my crew members took it. Now, with a lot of guests, I mean, there's 50, 60 people on the boat there, and I'm sure there's a lot more videos booting around as well. But, uh, no, they were in, like, total awe. I mean, it was once in a lifetime, uh, you know, for a lot of folks to, to see an iceberg, uh, you know, coming there uh, to a bucket list uh, destination. Uh, but then, let alone, you know, be, able to be out there and see one uh, calf like that did. Uh, it was incredible, really. Uh, incredible, but even for myself, uh, looking at it and uh, you know people used to it but uh, for someone that uh, probably never even been on a boat before and experienced that well it was certainly uh, once in a lifetime yeah it was very cool so you know the bookings are up that's great news what about ice are you anticipating to see more a few more bergs because last year pretty slow going and the the organizations that monitor icebergs and where they're going and i know they're hitting more warm water quicker than usual so we don't see as many as we have in years past where we might have some 350 cross that crucial uh, ladder Line. What are you seeing in the forecast for ice? Well, uh, according to the science on it, there's a nice bit of ice coming down, you know, uh, from up north. And uh, we just picked up, there's another one just came outside of Tony Gate there uh, a couple of days ago now. And I guess the good news is uh, anything outside now, um, uh, you know, the coast, uh, Patty, is going to end up with this northerly wind and northwest wind we're after uh, having the past day or so and going to continue to the weekend. Uh, you know, it's it's you can't get on the water, but it could be a good news story of, of bringing more ice close to shore so we we can uh, have the pleasure of viewing them, you know. But there is more ice coming down, and uh, we anticipate a, a decent iceberg season for sure. Glad to hear it. I appreciate making time for the show, Barry. Uh, say hello to Caroline for me, and hopefully have a great season. Uh, I, I will do that, uh, Patty, and uh, thanks uh, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm a first-time caller, but uh, I just want to compliment you as well on your show. It uh, really, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly a place for uh, us to view our points sometimes, and uh, and uh, we, we really appreciate what you do. Happy to be here. Thanks, Barry. You're welcome. Take good care. All right. That's Captain Barry Rogers from Iceberg Quest. Of course, got a boat operating out of St. John's Harbor and out in beautiful Twillingate. Let's take a break. When we come back, Mary's in the queue to talk about the recreational food fishery. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. 
Hi, good morning. Just wondering if there's been any news come out yet around the recreational food fishery for this year. <laughs> you know, the, like DFO is apt to do, it'll be the 11th hour before we find out. And that's an excellent question. I haven't heard any dates. Last year, the recreational food fishery opened up on the 3rd of July. So if it's going to be in a similar time frame, people have a month to prepare. And believe it or not, for some listeners, some people consider their travel dates surrounding the opportunity to get out on the water and uh, jig a car too. But I do not know when it's going to open, Mary. No news yet. Nothing. Okay, thank you. No problem, Mary. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, so last year it ran from uh, the 3rd of July to September the 6th, and then it reopened again the 25th of September to the 3rd of October. The guidelines hadn't changed. There's going to be some more debate about licenses or tag requirements. Remember that one that was banged about? Because some people will say, maybe some inshore harvesters would think that the codfish, the recreational food fishery, you know, is not helping with cod recovery when anecdotally it's probably around 1% or less for the total allowable catch for northern cod. But uh, curiously, the Atlantic salmon season has opened today on the island, June 15th in Labrador. So the Atlantic salmon angling season. Let's go to line number five. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Patty, I just, just uh, trying to find out something on that, asking a few questions. And nobody seems to really know the right answer, or what is the right answer. If you had the COVID, and you ha- you're waiting to get your uh, your booster shot, you're the ones for like over 65 and 70, and you're waiting to get the booster shot, nobody seems to know how long you have to wait. Uh, you know, uh, between uh, you had the COVID, how long you got to wait now before you can get the booster? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not so sure I know the exact number. You know, people can test positive for quite a long time, up to 90 days after they've recovered and are symptom-free from having contracted the virus. But how long you have to wait after COVID for the booster? I see, I've just popped up really something really quick right in front of me here. This is, okay, so Canada recommends three months. That was one of the things that came up right away. Yeah, Canada recommending three months after COVID before you get your booster. Yes, because uh, at one pharmacy they're telling me like three months. Another pharmacy said, well, as long as you feel okay. Another one says maybe 30 days. And some are saying on the Canada, it's saying uh, 90 days. So, you know, what is, I thought there'd be a hotline or something like, you know, for to, uh, uh, the medical, uh, you know, just phone in and ask those questions, like, you know. Well, this is from Health Canada and from the uh, from NACI, the National Association that's given the guidance to this province, and I imagine all provinces, regarding the vaccine for schedules and uh, intervals. And they're saying three months after COVID-19, when your symptoms have waned, uh, three months before you get your booster. So that, that's what's coming from the National Association that talks about uh, the immunization. Okay, thank you so much, Patty. Appreciate it. No problem, Mike. All the best. All the best to you. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, you know there has been some of the inconsistencies has made the conversation regarding vaccines unnecessarily treacherous. But I do think you're going to hear some pretty heavy pushback, you know, and I know I'm in the minority talking about mandates and the need for the travel mandate in particular federally to be carefully considered, at least give some answers as to why it remains in place because. Of the obvious reasons, but the government says it's going to be extended until the end of this month. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Angela. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Um, I called in a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to Brian about my situation, so I'll just um, pass it along to you now. Okay. Um, 
three years ago, my, my husband had to go to Toronto for open-heart surgery because it was too severe to be done in Newfoundland. Um, uh, eight days after surgery, he had what you call atrial fibrillation and lost all oxygen going to a spinal cord and made him paralyzed. So we came home from Toronto, and he ended up in hospital for nine months at the health science. And um, <clears throat> when he got out of hospital, he was given 42 hours of home care. Um, we had a home care worker for two years, and um, but after that, we could no longer... Um, get a home care worker um, they all left us because of his personal care and um, there was no other worker to be gotten so um, the community support program in the area called me and asked me would I do it uh, for him uh, be his home care worker and I, I agreed to it and uh, so two weeks ago they called me and told me I was no longer allowed to do the job because it was against uh, government policy, which I knew in the beginning, but because we couldn't get no other worker, I was given the job. And now we're in the same situation. We have no home care worker. Um, I have to go out and look for work because we need the income, but still I have no one to look after my husband. So... Uh, just I, because I didn't hear the conversation with Brian, I'm playing a little bit of catch up here. So you were told that you could take it upon yourself and be paid to offer home care for your husband. Is that what you said? Yeah. What you said? I was doing it for two years. Yes. Okay. And so what changed? Uh, they're saying it was due to COVID. They gave it to me. <laughs> so they passed the buck because of COVID. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like that's gone away. You know, it might be different these days and restrictions have been eased. So if you're not able to be the home care provider, doesn't that just fall back on government to provide you X number of hours for home care? Exactly. Is exactly. And so who, where does that stand? Who do, just, I, turn, who do I turn to? They, uh, I had a, a conference call with um, Eastern Health this morning, and they told me that they would provide uh, three hours of, of care a day uh, for five days a week, and uh, they would send um, a worker from St. John's for three hours a day and pay their travel. But yet they won't pay me four hours. <clears throat> you know, we've been talking, you know, there's, I'm curious to hear what the blueprint from Health Accord looks like, because there's going to be a lot of attention about aging in place, remaining at home, what long-term care looks like, uh, programs for the, what they call the frail elderly. But if people yeah. have the want and the ability to stay at home and to be cared for by a combination of loved ones and home care workers themselves, we've got to figure this out, because it sounds like an extraordinary turn of events that all of a sudden, because the government has decided that COVID is no longer with us, when in fact it still is at some level, then your ability to be paid to look after your loved one is taken away. Like it, it just, it seems as much cold as it does confusing. Exactly, and uh, I mean that's what I I said to her this morning. I said, uh, I mean, uh, I'm I'm not the only one going to be in that situation when there's a shortage of home care workers. Something got to be put in place for for long term 
Right. Uh, absolutely. You know, whether it be, well, we, we've seen the aging, uh, the aging population numbers coming from Stats Canada, some of the forecasts, what we can anticipate. So as I've said many times, if we don't acknowledge where we're heading and plan for it, then we're going to be chasing our tail, reacting too late. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be more expensive and families will be hurt. Exactly. So, yeah. So where do, do you turn? Excellent question. And if you turn to the regional health authority, I guess that would be the go-to. I wouldn't even know where else to point you, to be honest, because they're the one who would have to offer the home care hours. Maybe you can get some advocacy work uh, attended to by the folks at Seniors NL, for instance. And there's now a new seniors advocate. You know, it's probably helpful to put, uh, her name is Susan Walsh. I don't know if she's been approved by cabinet as of yet. She was in the selection. Oh, you were speaking with Susan Walsh. Okay, what did she have to say? Well, she she says it's just she's working on it, right? Yeah, because that advocate's office doesn't work on specific personal issues. It works on the systemic issues that face seniors in general. So uh, hopefully Ms. Walsh can be of some assistance to you. And I wish I had some more answers or some other places to point you, but between Seniors NL, the Seniors Advocate, and uh, the Regional Health Authority, that's sort of the unfortunate end of the road. Yes, yeah, okay. Um, i got to pass this along. Uh, the regional director in the area um, told my husband um, <clears throat> last week that if we got a divorce, there wouldn't be an issue. <laughs> Very rude from a, a coming from an Eastern health worker, right? Employee. Man, oh, man. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, probably the least helpful thing that anyone could possibly say to you. Yes. Angela, I wish you and your husband well. I wish I had more answers for you, but if you make any headway or you keep running into uh, log jams, let us know. We'll see what else we can think of. Okay. Thank you very much, Patty. Take good care, Angela. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Imagine coming from someone who you're reaching out for help. It's a serious matter. Well, if you got a divorce, things would be different. What? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Sam, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Betty. How are you today? Great. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Oh, not bad. But it's been a while since I called into your show. Uh, what I'd like to uh, speak about this morning, the recreation fishery. I had uh, some friends of mine coming home from Toronto now, uh, later on in the summer, and they contacted me the other night and wanted to know if it was recreation fishery uh, announced yet. But I'm hoping this summer, where it's come home here and everything, that they'll change it, that you can go out during the week, not just this uh, weekend, because the last time they were down, they were down for two weeks, and that was three years ago before COVID. Uh, we went out around the bay for a couple of weeks when they were down. We got out and boat once with the weather. Now, that was on the weekends, but all during the week when we were out there, you could shave in the ocean. No, perfectly calm, everything like that. Right from the, uh, the weekend came, Saturday morning, it was blowing a gale. So they got out once out of their two weeks when they were down. So I'm hoping this year, where it's come home here and everything, that that will be taken into consideration and uh, have it during the week. 
No, instead of just this uh, weekend part. Yeah, it was three days uh, a week. You walk Saturday, Sunday, Monday. But you make a good point yeah. about weather conditions. Some people will risk life and limb to get out there, and I don't know why they decide to do it that way. I suppose it's to control the amount of uh, cod taken by the food fishers. But, you know, some of that might boil back to the fact that you have some people who are willing to go out several times a day get 15 every single time and they'd be out at seven mm-hmm. days a week if they were given the chance which drags everybody down now i'm just guessing that might be part of the thought process at dfo but a little bit of latitude like for instance if saturday is not fit then sunday monday tuesday but i guess every right. region then you'd have a bit of a dog's breakfast because it might be calm uh, woody point and blown a gale in conception bay so i don't know what yes. they do but easier access is always a good idea yeah, yeah. Or even, even I would even be satisfied if the king of takes that you go use them whenever you, uh, anytime, right? The same salmon fishery, right? You know, if they came up to takes, they had them, I think it was the first time they ever opened it, right, for the recreation fishery. But uh, there'd be nothing wrong with having a tag system. You'd be given so many tags for the summer, and then you could pick your days to go out uh, and uh, catch a few fish. I think I'm just guessing now, but I will, I will guess that the pushback about tags would be fierce. Even though your point is spot on, if you are allowed to go out whatever day and catch based on the number of tags you have, then it'd probably be easier for everyone involved. But of course, people don't want to be told what to do or dictated to. You know, there's that thought that well, this is my God-given right to go out in the mm-hmm. water, catch something to eat, and I don't dispute that necessarily. A little bit of control is always going to be required. Rules are going to be part and parcel of things like this. But the tags would allow me to go out on Thursday if Thursday was a nice, calm day and I had the day off work, as opposed to Sunday or Saturday, Sunday, Monday, whether or not it's fit to go out, some people will try it, and we've seen the unfortunate stories there. Sam, it's an interesting yeah. idea. I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't think I ever thought anyone would propose a tag system in the recreational food fishery, but yeah. it's a good conversation to have. Oh yeah, I would have no problem. I know many people too, right? That they wouldn't have a problem with tags, no. But you're always going to have some opposition to it. Oh yeah, out with tags, right? No, yeah, no matter what you do, right? But I'm I'm just uh, looking at the weekend part. No, it's just uh, uh, normally it's uh, windy a lot of times on the weekend like that, and during the week it's nice and calm and everything like that, right? So I'm hoping it's something that they might consider now, right, when they're uh, making decisions for to uh, make the announcement for the summer. It's an interesting one. I yeah. uh, appreciate the time. I will see if we can get a response from DFO to give us a heads up. Usually that's, you know, just uh, wishful thinking to be able to get a heads up before yes. the formal announcement. But I'd like to know myself. I appreciate the time yeah. this morning, Sam. Thank you. Oh, all right. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And, of course, the, you know, no high grading. I was in a boat this number of years ago where I was a little bit shocked. You know, everyone wants to bring in reasonable size. You know, you get five per person, 15 per boat. Even that, that's not black and white the law. It's what t- people are told to do. But Buddy brought up what was a relatively small cut and took it off, took, flicked it back in. I don't I think you'd be in a bit of trouble if you got doing that. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Chris. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Top shelf this morning. How about you? Oh, good. I was just—I'd uh, just like to thank you for uh, talking a lot about Newfoundland agriculture. I'm a farmer here in Newfoundland. Uh, I was just listening to Christopher Bruce's comments, and I'd like to make some comments on that. Go right ahead. 
Uh, the thing about rotational uh, farming, we rotate uh, quite constantly. Um, that's something that you had to do no, no matter what, right? Whether you're growing potatoes, turnip, cabbage, carrot, all of those vegetables are turned in, and then sometimes we have to turn it in back into grass to give it a three or four year day re- or three or four day year rest. So most of that is done anyway. I, I just wanted to comment that. I, I commented on Mr. Bruce's thing on Facebook a couple of times, and so I thought it needed to be said. Um, like I said, the uh, and the quota system. I'm on the fence about the quota system. I'm I'm currently a vegetable farmer, and and like I said, so uh, I, I got a few views on it. The quota system is kind of out there. It, it works against you, but then it's kind of a good thing because it gives you a steady supply. And like I said, when you got a million dollars in 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 infrastructure and that thing to be able to produce milk for what we're self-sufficient in milk um it helps us keep it going now the other thing is it's bad for if if you are trying to get into it it causes issues but like to get into milking cows it costs you millions of dollars right I would think so, especially with the type of apparatus, the equipment that's used, the advances in technology to milk a cow versus yourself, the b- bucket and a stool. Yeah, yeah, quite different. And and like the quota system that he was talking about, the uh, the eggs, uh, Country Ribbon, uh, not that he's familiar with it, but Country Ribbon came in about, oh, about 20 years ago. And I don't know if they bought up all the quota for meat chickens, which is broiler chickens in our world, and that's different than egg chickens. Okay, so Country Ribbon, as far as I know, they don't produce eggs. They produce meat. You know, I I think the the thought there is that because of their position in the agricultural world, that the quota system has been adjudicated at 99 chickens i don't know i mean i don't know if country ribbon sells a single egg but that would be the thought that you know it's everything is in scale right so if i wanted to ramp up whether i've had uh, a new opportunity to market my product eggs in this case does it make sense is there a margin there to have 99 birds or does my business model need 500 birds to make it work for me and my farm and the market that i'm trying to satisfy that's the only points i'm making there is you know i don't know if it's an arbitrary number or it's a very similar number used in other provinces i think chris said that there that's the lowest number that the province has selected to work off but you know when i'm trying to whether it be to improve my own profits or to create more jobs or to expand my offerings if there's hurdles that I need to clear to do so sometimes they seem unnecessary to me but you're working in the industry you know more about it than me yeah like I said I got I got 24 years uh, as a first generation farmer so so it's it's, yeah it's been an uphill battle no doubt I'll totally agree with Chris on that but uh, like I said the quota system is a scary system and and yes it's not for the but most of the quota systems are set up so that like it's a steady supply like you like we get chicken here probably just as good as priced as the mainland right because they can afford the cheap feed they can afford you know different things and that's and that's why now i'm not saying that it's all right definitely not but but i'm just i want to let people know like there's a different side of that quota uh all time i don't agree with it but i will tell you like some of it's set up like a lot of small woods have all the egg quota and stuff like that so 
um, that's an, that's another family altogether, or another. No, there's a bunch of egg farmers that are totally different than the meat farmers, right? So, like I said, I, I do see and I do agree with the small farms, and I do think that they're coming. But you got to realize the government wants to put money in the operations that are going to. Their mandate is to provide food for the for Newfoundlanders. So, like I said, they want to put money into operations that are going to do that, right? Yep. Not saying that that's the wrong thing, but like for me to get it, for anybody to get a government grant, if you're not a new entrant, you had to make fifteen thousand dollars a year on your farm. If you don't make fifteen thousand, while well, you go in, if you're just starting off, you go into what they call a new entrance program, right? So that just, like I said, and that you know, there's issues, no doubt. I mean, you know, I can tell you hundreds of them, but. But what I'm saying is that there is, you know, you had to make that $15,000 to qualify for any grant money or any anything to help you along there. Or if you're a new entrance, well, that's different altogether, right? Well, what's in the new entrance program? What can you avail of there? Well, you could avail of, like, the same funding, but you won't have to make that $15,000 to start. Oh, okay. So, like, like the, right now, like, say if I have a bad year or whatever, hopefully not to go down below 15000 but, uh, you know, like I said, there's, you know, there's issues, there's just issues that we got to really look at, but, you know, and I hear you talk about them every day. I'm, I got my headphones on, listening away, <laughs> but, uh, but I got to say, like I said, you know, there's, there's a lot, little bit more to it sometimes than we talk about. And, and like I said, I'm a first generation and I've been at it 24 years and I'll tell you, you know, I've seen people like that come and go and, and even like myself come and go and you know, want to make sure our tax dollars are used rightly too, right? Well, that's why, like I said to Chris, and I'll say it to anyone working in any sector of the economy or of society, when we only get a part of the story or we get the part of the story wrong or there needs to be more information added to so we can have a well-rounded conversation, that's why I rely on people like you because we, I can only do so much in my poor little pea brain to try to figure stuff out that I don't work in. So when Chris adds his two cents and you add yours and you expand on the quota system, how the upside and downside, that's better for the listener. It's certainly much better for me. So I really appreciate you making time for us. Like we're doing probably 20 acres of vegetables, which probably equals out to probably 80,000 pounds of each, you know, each vegetable crop, right? And we're tiny compared to whatever, you know, like we're only small. We're selling on the side of the road. We're doing whatever, right? Yeah. But I mean, I still had to pay uh, $2 a liter for gas, I still had to, you know, send my kids to school, you know, right? So I still had to make X amount of dollars. Now, there's other things that can be done to help me out. And, I'm, you know, like I said, you know, that could definitely other things, right? But, you know, like you still had to be, you can be small and that's all right. But unless you, unless you're going to make a bit of money to survive, well, you really can't be at it, right? Makes sense to me. Chris, I really appreciate the time. Good luck this season. All right, buddy. I'll be listening on the radio all the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Stay in touch. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Quick point on the food, fishery, and tags. So Steve makes the point. You know, whether it be emissions-related conversation and or simply cost, if people were given tags to go get their cod whenever they saw fit, then, of course, it would cost far less to put the boat in the water. That's an excellent point. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Sylvia, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Great today. Thank you. How about you? Fantastic. Good. Um, I'm just calling regarding the cost of everything going up. 
um, some things has tripled, but, you know, our disability pensions haven't moved. It's still the same. Disability pensions, uh, so I, the average is around 1100 You can make get as much as 1400 ish But I thought disability pensions in particular were annually adjusted for inflation. They're not? Well, maybe 2 or $3. That's about it. And, you know, a lot of disabilities are not that high. Yeah, so other than inflationary adjustments, I don't know what kind of other measures can be used because cost of living is a different beast if I live in St. John's versus Toronto or Vancouver. So what has been the track record the last number of years for any increases? And you say just a few dollars on yours. Yeah, yeah, just a few dollars. But like the, the cost of gas, like you go out to medical appointments, it costs you more and more and more. And when you go to pick up your medication, it's more. When you go to a grocery store, it's three times as much. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're pointing out what we all unfortunately know and see every single day. I can't think of anything that's gone down. Now, someone told me that there's uh, been a, a decrease in some of our uh, telecom plans, our data plans with the phone companies, and that's true to an extent. It's a really competitive world, but just about everything else I touch, my insurance premiums, gas, food, you name it, through the roof is what it feels like. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I just, I need to bring up that point. Are disability pensions also adjusted based on the number of dependent children? Yes, I assume so. Yeah. But when you have to know dependent children is a little different. Yeah, no, I, I was just asking because you're someone who would be receiving one and know more about it. I was just, uh, I was curious, it just popped into my mind. Um, the, I think it's the credit tax is what uh, they put towards dependents, isn't it? It could be. I may be wrong there. There is a disability tax credit. Yes. Well, I know I have that, but for children, I do not. Mine is like 35 years old. So, no, I don't have it. So here I am, 57, and no dependents. And still nothing is going up except for a couple dollars in January or February. And mine is, mine is still under 900 a month. Well, I really appreciate you making time for the show, and we all completely understand your concerns. When you have a fixed amount of money coming in the door and the inability to, whether it be take on a second job or whatever that people are forced to do these days, then making ends meet was difficult enough three years ago, but now where we are, it's, it's just, it's really crushing for so many people, Sylvia. I understand. And, you know, like how my mind just, just blows my mind just to think of a family of four, say a family of four, and two of them on minimum wage or just one of them working. It's brutal. Absolutely. Like how did how do you do it even healthy? It's it's blows my mind to think again. Well, I mean, I admit this uh, all the time. I just, when people tell me how much money they have coming in the door, regardless if it's on social assistance or disability pensions or their own pensions, CPP, OIS, GIS, whatever we want to combine, 
I really don't know how people make ends meet. I just generally do not understand how they're able to stave off the wolf. Uh, but I appreciate your time here this morning, Sylvia. Would you like to say anything else before we go? No, that's, that's fine. I just like to get that point out. I'm glad you did. Thanks for the call. Thank you so much. Take care, Sylvia. Bye-bye. Great, bye-bye. Yeah, and so, you know, and that's where the conversation in the House of Assembly would be like cost of living mitigation measures. And there's a few, and we can talk about whether or not they're doing enough or what you think they could be doing in addition to. But the concept of too little, too late is, I mean, I think the, the opposition parties are making a relevant point on that front. The whole confusion about provincial gas tax and its relationship to the carbon tax and whatever the backstop means that has been bandied about so often, if that was a conversation, because we all saw where we were headed, you know, the forecast and spike in the price of fuels, and not just as it relates to Russia and Ukraine, but the obvious issues that are going on, is if that was a concern, it kind of took a long time for some sort of negotiation between the province and the federal government to ensure that the government federally would not impose this backstop if there was any adjustment made to provincial gas tax. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, lots of show left to speak with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at Trades NL. That's Darren King. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you this morning? Great this morning. Thank you. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Great. Appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. Happy to have you on the program. So obviously, welcome news for people working in the trades with the reinvigoration at the West White Rose Extension Project. Uh, just before we get to what it means for your the people you represent, when the Oil and Gas Recovery Fund was brought forward and $41.5 million went to that project, it was intended to keep some 331 jobs in place. I don't think it worked out exactly like that. What did it mean in reality for jobs on the ground? Uh, for us, for jobs on the ground, there were very little. Yeah. I think, I think for the longest period of time, we had somewhere between, I'll say, 10 and 20 people out there, as low as 8 or 10 at one point, mainly security and, and those preserving the site. Because I think the bulk of the money at that point in time was uh, around continuing with the engineering and supporting some of the staff who were involved in the project. Um, our, our numbers have increased. We're probably about 120 or so there today. But, yeah, to your point, it was it was not directly impacting us a lot. We had, like I said, anywhere from 10 to 20 people at any given time. Some of the forecasted numbers regarding the value and what West White Rose extension means, the government and the companies will say some $20 billion in GDP, $7 billion in labor income, 14 years, 1,500 jobs, direct and indirect, maybe 200 permanent on the platform. What does it mean realistically for your members now that the project will restart? Well, I, I, you know, it's difficult to say at this point until we have some detailed discussions with the company, but uh, I think, you know, if now that we're moving forward, we're likely going into a big concrete pour in 2023, probably be start ramping up the workforce in early January. <clears throat> For the rest of this year, we're not sure, but likely not, not a big lot here. But with the concrete pour, Patty, once things get back in order, um, I mean, we, we hit close to 2,700 people at max before the project shut down. Now, they're not projecting that, but they are projecting, I think, somewhere in the area of 1,700. Uh, my experience tells me that if they're projecting 1,700, it'll probably go higher than that. that that's been our experience. It's been a rough go uh, for the people that you represent. So when we talked about, you know, the NL first and the benefits agreements and make sure we maximize potential for people who live here, they have the experience and they're ready to go. But given some of the downturn uh, for opportunities inside the trades, 
are the people around to fill the jobs? Because it's one thing to have a benefits agreement, another thing to actually have people who maybe have been forced to go elsewhere looking for the work. So are the tradespeople to fill all these roles here? Yeah, yeah, for certain. We, we do. We, we have the trades workers here. I mean, we, we do have a, a mobile workforce and there's a, a quite a strong contingent who are moving back and forth across Canada. Uh, I mean, inter- interestingly enough, uh, Newfoundland is a little bit of the exception to the rule right now because in every other province, the uh, building trades are maxed out. There's just so much construction work going on. It, it's just unreal. Um, we're, we're a little bit of the exception, although, you know, with this announcement, things are starting to rebound. Uh, but we'll have, we'll have no difficulty filling the positions, none whatsoever. Uh, you know, we, we've got lots of the trades. And right now, it, it's, it's still focused with the concrete pour, more on a, a civil, the civil side of things. Uh, once we get the next concrete pour, we'll start looking for more of our mechanical trades, like our pipe fitters and our sheet metal and our electricians and so on. But, we, yeah, we certainly have the capacity here to fill the jobs, no question about that. Where are you on long-term optimism? Because there's been a lot of down in the mouth, and it's easy to understand why. The pandemic has been hard on all of us, whether it be pocketbooks or mental exhaustion. But the mining sector has wicked opportunity for growth, and we've seen some of it happening. And we know there's going to be some uh, more opportunities very likely in the oil and gas business because Equinor is out there exploring again in the Flemish Pass. ExxonMobil says they're doing the exact same thing. It looks like there's going to be a successful parcel bid at the CNLOPB. So there are things to look forward to. What's your level of optimism? Well, I have I have lots of optimism optimism for the future. I, I, and I think the opportunities before us, uh, not only in the oil and gas industry, but you know we're having discussions around some proponents for hydrogen development. Uh, the mining sector is good. Uh, you know, I, I think the key is going to be maximizing the benefits for the province. And I, I, I don't want to keep beating that beating that story, but, you know, I've attended two conferences this week. Uh, earlier in the week, I was in Halifax talking about Indigenous participation in the trades. Tomorrow, there's a national conference here around women in the trades. And it all ties back, you know, to the same issue that we've been advocating for a long time, which is benefits agreements. And I, and I think that's critical. Uh, and I think what's also critical is ensuring that uh, government and negotiators get everything they can possibly do for the province. So if you take the Beta Nord project as an example, uh, about a month ago, they had a big announcement where uh, there was a project being done in Norway or around Norway, um, similar to Beta Nord. They had an FPSO hall developed somewhere in Asia, and the hall was being brought to Norway for the rest of the work, which includes all of the top sides work and the piping for the subsea work to be done by Norwegians. And that, you know, that's really what we're advocating for. And if, if we get anything close to that here, you're talking literally thousands of jobs for a long period of time. So, uh, you know, I'm optimistic, but I, I think we have to be steadfast in making sure that uh, that we take strong positions, uh, maximizing benefits for people of the province. There's uh, the oil industry in particular right now. I mean, the price of oil is really high. Companies are posting record profits uh, worldwide, and we should be able to share in that, not only just in profit to government, but we should have through royalties, but we should be sharing in it by local benefits for uh, for local indigenous women and other trades workers, and all of the spin-offs Patty, that come with that with the local supply and service sector. Yeah, and I mean just even expanded tax base, right? I mean it could be a benefit to us all, not just trades people. That sometimes we lose sight of that. Uh, this uh, a question from a listener. It's a very direct one. Is do you know who the drilling contractor is going to be for the platform? Uh, no, I don't. Sorry. I have okay. no idea. He made reference to, reference to hydrogen. So we know John Risley's got a proposal out there now to acquire the port of Stephenville. It's a deep water port, lots of wind in the area, uh, to have uh, wind power for water electrolysis and hydrogen. Do you know anything uh, more, more about the project than just the news story that we've seen? 
No, that's the only thing I know about that one. Um, I, we've had we haven't had discussions with them yet, but we've had discussions with other proponents who are looking at doing something in Labrador. Uh, I'm down here at Noya this morning, or sorry, Energy and Al this morning, and. There was just an announcement a short while ago. Uh, a company announced they have a partnership with the Port of Argentia to look at similar hydrogen wind projects in Argentia area. So it, it, there appears all of a sudden with the, the recent lifting of the moratorium that there's lots of interest in wind and hydrogen development projects. So great opportunities there for sure. It's new for us. So I think uh, for Trade NL and for contractors and others, uh, there's a bit of an education to go on here and figure out what it all means. But certainly lots of optimism around that for sure. Uh, this is a question that I've asked in the past. I'm going to do it again this morning morning just so we can uh, have the listeners understand exactly what we're talking about with benefits agreements you know it's not only hire locals first but how do you make sure we strike the balance that absolutely the men and women here that are skilled and they have the experience and the accreditation they should absolutely have first crack at the job how do you make sure that a benefits agreement here doesn't put us in places like say Quebec it's great for Quebec but we've got a mobile workforce as you pointed out they might be working in Alberta or Saskatchewan companies that are based here doing business outside of the province how do you strike the balance to ensure that the benefits agreement also allows for others to not be shoving it in our face when we have our men and women looking for jobs elsewhere? Well, I think there are a couple of key points to that. So, for, so first of all, the first part of your question, when we talk about benefit agreements, what are we talking about? Uh, what we're really talking about is, is basically a local hiring preference, which exists in every province, by the way, across Canada. Sure. Uh, every, everybody has it. So local hiring preference, which means that uh, if the qualified men and women are here in Newfoundland and Labrador, they get first priority. Secondly, we'd have an inclusion for um, the hiring of underrepresented groups, so persons with disabilities, indigenous workers, and women in the trades in particular. There will be provisions there would target set, uh, and we'd have to work towards that, both on our side, the union side, and the company side. Um, thirdly, there'd be provisions for workforce development for the long term, because we are going to see a shortage in trades nationally, and it's going to happen to a lesser degree, but it's going to happen here in the province as well. So that, that will be the first component on the labor side. Um, the other piece tied in directly to the oil and gas, uh, though, is, is the benefits around where the work is being constructed. So it's not just if they put a small piece of work here and we get the benefits agreement. It's, it's the benefits generally of where the work is constructed. Um, the piece that strikes me about that is anytime there's work done at a province such as today with Husky, uh, yeah, sorry, Sonovus uh, and the top size for the West White Rose. No, no one has really been transparent and had discussions, at least not with us, to, to tell us why. Like, if it's a cost of labor that's an issue, or if it's productivity, or if there are other issues, then then those are the kinds of discussions that we need to have in an open and transparent manner, so that if we have control over over something that can be fixed, and we get, be given the opportunity to fix it. I guess so. That that's where I would see the balance is. But you know, generally, we shouldn't be accepting anything less than other countries are accepting, like the Norway example I just gave you. I listen until somebody can be transparent and tell us why. There's no reason that the tar top sides and the subsea work of the Bay of the North can't be done here in the province and benefit not just big sites like Bull Arm and Marystown, but many other fab shops and other sites across the province. Uh, I think I said that was last one, but it wasn't. This is last one. Um, so some of the other opportunities may be in the now simply a branding exercise of the Atlantic Loop and what that means for the hydrogen input, I don't know. Hear any more rumbles about Atlantic Loop and in particular any rumbles about Gull Island? 
Uh, well, yeah, in, interesting enough, Minister Reagan just spoke here this morning and, he, and those questions were put to him and he, he touched on both. So <clears throat> on Gull Island, I, I, I think that there's definitely discussions going on. And I think based on what I'm hearing, I think you're definitely going to see that project move sometime. I, I won't give a time frame, but I think it's definitely going to move because it suits all of the agenda for uh, nationally and provincially uh, around the move to clean energy and green energy um, and it has the ability to supply energy to other parts of the country so i think it's just a matter of the politics and the timing but i think that project will make lots of sense as long as it's structured right with some private equity partners and a little different perhaps management structure and oversight than we've seen in the past like with muskrat um, on the Atlantic Loop, similarly, the, you know, the message we're hearing there is is to be a little bit cautious on our expectations, but it's it's absolutely going to move as part of the National Energy Plan. Uh, the federal government is looking at other parts of the country as well, doing similar things. But the Atlantic Loop specifically is focused on getting New Brunswick and Nova Scotia off coal. Uh, and Gull Island, I think, ties right into that because it has the ability to provide the alternate energy required. So, I, I, you know, I'm optimistic, you know, whether that's two, three or four years out, who knows. But I'm optimistic that both of those things are definitely moving. Yeah, and hopefully it comes with the power purchase agreement vastly different, 180 degrees different than the Muskrat PP. Uh, good to have you on the show. Darren, anything else you'd like to add? No, always a pleasure. Um, perhaps next week sometime when we get more details on White Rose, I'll be happy to give you a call and update you on that. Happy to take the call. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate the time. All Thank the best. You. Bye-bye. It's Darren King, the Executive Director at Trades and Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Jackson the Q, he wants to talk about the upcoming uh, recreational food fishery. We did indeed, actually, Linda Swain reached out to DFO about the pending dates, and the response is short. It says, no decision has been made at this time. Once a decision is made, it will be communicated broadly. Okay, we'll see what Jack has to say after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Jack, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. How about you? Good, good. Uh, who uh, who makes the decision about the recreational fishery, the provincial or the federal government? The federal government. It's the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Okay. Boy, they've had a year like to do it, and it seems like every year goes right up to the last minute. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It always does. So let's yeah. see here. I cracked open a news story. Uh, May 29th of 2021, when they announced the, uh, the upcoming food fishery, it didn't start until the 3rd of July. So there was about a month, and we're around a month out from what would be a natural natural starting point in and around the first week of July. So this is always the case. As long as I can remember, it's usually 30 days-ish you know, prior to the season opening where they make the announcement. Yeah, for sure. And uh, do you think they're going to take into account the, uh, like, the cost of gas and oil and all that kind of stuff? How would they do? How would they do that, in your opinion? Uh, well, if you could go when you want, you wouldn't be forced to go in the rough days. And you know, if you had the tag system, maybe you could catch your fish in a, in a, you know a few a few times out, we'll say, you know? You know, I've heard nothing but arguments against the uh, tags, but the the points being brought forward by yourself and others, they just make a lot of sense to me. You know, people feel like they're being dictated to, and everyone's kind of sick of being told what to do uh, by governments at all levels. But if you wanted to, at your leisure, during a designated time, July to September, to go out and get your however many, let's just pick a number, 30, get your 30 cod, 
do it whenever you like. Do it all in one fell swoop. Save on the trip cost. Uh, absolutely go out when the water's calm and the weather's conducive to a safe trip out on the bay. That makes sense to me. Now that people are talking about it like that, I think it makes all the sense in the world. Well, it, it sure wouldn't hurt. And this is come home, yeah, and people are coming home. And Newfoundlanders love the water. And here they are going to be, you know, pinned to three days maybe in their full holiday schedule. Yeah. So, I don't know. It just doesn't make no sense. And uh, another thing, I don't know if, how many people is aware of this, but the uh, all the tour boat operators, they could uh, catch fish uh, seven days a week last year. But from Tuesday to Friday, they had to catch and release. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a little bit of flexibility because, once again, if I'm from somewhere... I'm from Germany, and I come here and I get to see what we see on the water, and at the exact same time I get to jig a couple of cod to bring them to shore to have a little uh, boil-up. I mean, that must be just an amazing experience. So I think that's, of course, another sensible thing because travel is about experience. If you are exposed to something that you wouldn't have a chance to do where you come from, that's what makes a holiday. It's not just about seeing the museums and the churches and the like uh, and the monuments and the historical portions of some of the world's great cities. It's about an experience. So I would imagine the folks who've had the chance to do that, they'll never forget it. Yeah, I know, but uh, from Tuesday to Friday, <laughs> they weren't allowed to bring him to shore. They caught him, and they had to release him there and then. Yeah, they should be just like you're suggesting with tags. You know, we could associate X number of tags with the tour operators as well. Like, I don't know how it would work exactly, yeah, but that it, makes sense. You know, uh, you've been on the water before. Yes. You have picked up, uh, you know, 50, 60 fathoms. That's not going to survive. No, I mean, catch and release is uh, dubious at the best of times, but certainly if you haul a, a cod up from that depth, uh, that that fish is as good as gone. Good as gone, sir. Yeah, but uh, I, I don't know. They, they seem to drag their feet all the time, the DFO. Even the commercial, uh, the men that making a living at it, they they can't get no sense out of them. Absolutely know? right, yeah. And, and is there nobody controlling them that can tell them to do their work? Well, I mean, they're a federal government entity. I don't know what would be the type of oversight offered to DFO versus any other government department. And, you know, maybe someone from DFO, and look, they're more than welcome to join us on the program because there's a never-ending list of questions that we can pose to them, is, you know, whether or not 60 days is required for a heads up, whether or not more than a few weeks is required for the commercial inshore harvester who needs to gear up and crew up uh, to get out in the water for whatever species. Maybe it's time that there's an earlier price setting as well because, you know, you'll make some of your plans based on what you think your profits might be. So there's always seems to be uh, really late in the day stuff, decisions being made regarding whether it be recreational food fishery or commercial issues. It just always seems like it's really late. It is. And like I said, people... Just people that live and work here in the province uh, book their holidays around those times. You know, and you just can't book, go into the office and say, okay, I'm taking the next two weeks off. You know, you, you kind of got to book it. I agree with you, Jack. I appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else? No, that's fine. Good to have you on. Thank you very much, Patty. Have a good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, we'll get this one before we go to the news. Let's go to line number one and say to Mike, uh, say good morning to Mike Gillen. He's from St. Andrews Presbyterian Church. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Could not be better, sir. How about you? 
Not bad at all. Uh, I must say before I start at things that uh, I saw, I and so many others so much appreciate what you do. You really bring an awful lot to the province, and uh, you're, you're a fine example of what it is to be a fine young man, I must say. Well, that's very kind words. Uh, I appreciate that. Mike, uh, tell us about the lobster dinner. Well, sir, uh, as part of our fundraising activities for the Kirk for more than 40 years now, we've uh, done a lobster dinner where we combined takeouts with a uh, dinner in the hall and had everybody that we could get our hands on to uh, volunteer and participate with us. And then since the pandemic has come along, we've gone on to a, a full takeout side of it, a contactless takeout. So what we've got on the go is uh, we've got two dates in June and, and one is already booked. So what I'm looking for here today is promote our June the 9th takeouts for two lobsters, uh, potato salad, toss salad, coleslaw. I made a bunch of carrot cakes. We've got some rolls and a small bottle of wine in there. We're offering the, the takeout boxes for $75 a piece. And they go a long ways to supporting our not only uh, in the neighborhood and, and uh, initiatives for for what we do that has be a church in our community, but also some of our international uh, fundraising activities to support international charities as well. So, again, the, the lobster dinner is for June the 9th. It's $75 for a box with two lobsters and all the trimmings in it. And they can be ordered at 726-5385. And they'll be picked up on Thursday. A time will be arranged when you call to order them. And you would drive in through the parking lot at Longs Hill and up in front of the Kirk. And somebody would place the boxes in your trunk. You don't even have to get out of the car. Wine, you say? Yes, a small bottle of wine goes in there, too. I don't know. I often scratched my head on that one. But, yes, no, we tried to put the whole meal deal together. That sounds about right to me. Give us some ideas, some of the community outreach and initiatives that these dinners will fund. Well, sir, uh, as a church, we, we certainly look forward to supporting as many things as we can, both locally and internationally. And uh, Bridges to Hope, I think, would be our, our, our biggest concern and uh, and also what we provide the, the biggest support for locally, um, other such things as, as Howard House and, and certainly a Refugee House and, and many other things. Um, really, and I, I think I can speak for all churches at this point in that we certainly do look to our community and look to being part of a world community as well. Mike, I appreciate you making time. I've Exchange notes with, oh, the man's name eludes me at this moment. Uh, Andrew. Andrew. Andrew Halliday, yes. He uh, sent yes. me a note organizing this chat, and I'm glad we did it. Because these types of, whether it be, you know, flipper dinner at the Legion or what they did at the Hub a few weeks back and your lobster dinner, the more we can help you along, the more help you can provide to the community. So this is exactly one of the reasons that the show is here. And it's good to have you on this morning. So one more time, if you like a feed of lobster, the box has a couple of lobster in it, all the trimmings, a small bottle of wine, $75 a box. All you have have to do and that's coming up on thursday the 9th of june call 726-5385 to place your order and organize a time for uh contactless pickup yes sir that'll be the one and thank you so much patty happy to have you on mike good luck bye now bye-bye that's mike killen from st andrew's presbyterian church and their lobster dinner i do enjoy lobster i have to say don't eat it often it's pretty rich but you never know it might find a home for a 75 dollar box all right let's take a break for the news when we come back what are we talking about well that's up to you don't go away join us for on target one hour in which linda swain examines topics that mean the most to you on target weekday afternoons at one on your vocm Welcome back to the program. Let us go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center. He's the interim leader of the NDP. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. Thank you. How are you? Not too bad at all. It's a good day, even if uh, even if it is dreary out. <laughs> yeah, but apparently it's going to clear up a little bit, just in time for me to get out in it. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Hopefully for us, too. 
Uh, I see today you have as your question of the um, day is about the sh the uh, sugar sweetened tax drink, and uh, it's an interesting question to have. It's uh, it's a good one too, timely. Um, and uh, I'll just start out by saying, from our point of view, uh, from our uh, standpoint, uh, that really, in the end, good food, healthy food, uh, is got to be something that's affordable, appealing, and available to all people. Um, and as far as we're concerned, this uh, this this measure, this tax is not doing that job. It's not making uh, the healthier food choices more available to people and uh, more affordable as well. You don't think it's going to influence what people buy? It will influence <clears throat> if they can't afford the healthy food. It's not going to. It's not going to help them much. I mean, uh, so so I'll give you an example of where I'm going with it. Uh, and, and and understand me uh, to me if it's if it's about making food, uh, making the healthier food choices more uh, affordable, then that's, that's that's where we need to focus. But we've already got communities, for example, that um, that have boil water orders. They don't even have the uh, the the option of a guess clean drinking water uh, or safe drinking water. We've got communities in uh, in Labrador my in uh, uh, Lee Evans district in Torngat where you're you're paying for a, a like a, a can of stew for, uh, uh, over $7 uh, for a can. So here I know that the people Patty that I've served with whether it's St. Vincent and Paul um that they were struggling long before this uh we've got uh, even in the fall of the year uh, it, it, there were people who were struggling to put food on the table they even healthy food choices they as as people who were with diabetics said I just can't I'm just struggling to put the healthier food choices on it so these are people who are already trying to avoid like uh, their sugar intake and uh those options weren't there and that's the issue it comes down to is how do we go about making uh, the healthier food that's more available, uh, that makes sure it's more available, more affordable for people, and that they can make those choices? In Labrador, such a unique uh, conversation regarding access and price. Yeah. You know, the two programs that are in place federally just don't seem to work, whether it be Nutrition North or the airlift subsidy. I don't know why they don't work, but they don't seem to. People and send me pictures of the price tags in the grocery store. It's outrageous. Yeah, no, and Lila was showing them to me yesterday. It is, and it, and for a lot of, uh, I, I think I was telling you back in December, the lady who was uh, uh, who called to me, uh, she was on income support, a single mom, and she was uh, she had spent a hundred dollars at uh, at the supermarket, and she didn't know how she was going to feed her family. So it, at that time, uh, that engendered someone who helped her out as one of the callers, people listening to your show. But it can't be that can't be the solution. So and 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 I should point out too, it's only back in January that. Uh, the uh, lawsuit was approved in uh, <laughs> with regards to supermarket chains who are uh, price fixing bread price uh, bread prices i think they overcharged consumers 5 billion dollars over the last 16 years so uh, for uh, for the bread price, so you look at necessities, and I think there there are other ways we've got to address that. To your point, in Labrador, I don't know. It, it should work. It it should be uh, bringing prices down, but it's not. And those are the issues we've got to address uh, in terms of. Uh, <clears throat> it's great to uh, raise the uh, the uh, the price on a can of Pepsi. Guess what? I'm not I'm not drinking it now anyway. I one time did. I, I gave up. Uh, I made that choice. And I would say there are a lot of us in that position. But uh, in that, but you know, if you've got clean drinking water as, as an alternative, if you've got healthier uh, food choices, then that's not an issue. But. I wonder how you achieve it. You know, because government picking winners and losers is already a. 
I don't know if it's the most helpful thing, but making less healthy options, quote unquote, more expensive is one thing. But how do you make healthier options less expensive? Because it's one thing to be able to apply a tax. That's the easy part. The you know, that's the, the low hanging fruit, so to speak. But how does government make costs more efficient and effective and lower for consumers to, to choose healthier? I don't really know what mechanism can be put in place. I think, though, you know what? We start with a discussion on that, and that's, and that, and that's uh, like, the, I don't know if there's any quick answer, but let me, let's look at this. Uh, is there, <clears throat> if, since we transport most of our food into this province, is there a way we can uh, <clears throat> subsidize the cost for transport so that those savings are passed on? The trick is making sure that those uh, savings are passed on. Do we look at uh, how do we increase minimum wage? Do we look at increasing income support? Or maybe increasing... Um I don't know, maybe more urban farms, especially in the met, in the urban centers, or uh, more funding to community centers who work directly with people who are on uh, uh, and low, uh, working with people who maybe were low wage uh, and, and 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 barely subsisting. So I think, like, I'm just throwing out ideas now in response to that. And and you raise a very good point: is you know the low hanging fruit. It's easy to put the tax on it. Uh, I don't know if I'd be putting the money towards, uh, let's say, a healthy living. Uh, credit, uh, but in the end, whether I sign up for a fitness club, if I can't afford to put food on the table, I think, you know, we need to find, have that discussion as to, uh, which may be a very much, a much more complicated discussion, Patty, and might require us uh, readjusting how we do things, but I think, uh, you know, simply taxing the drink and, and then saying, well, that's going to, people, we're going to encourage people to make choices, that works if indeed the healthy food, uh, 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 healthy food is all still is now more affordable, and I don't know if it's getting more affordable. I, I, I not that enough what I've seen at the supermarket lately, anyway. Well, not uh, where, when I shop, you know. <laughs> so, uh, government kind of admits through this sugary tax uh, that's coming in on September first of this year, is that they acknowledge that people m- might not necessarily make said healthier choice because they forecast annual income of, or revenue, pardon me, of around $9 million. That basically says they know it's not going to work the way it's intended to work in full. It may indeed change some people's uh, behavior as they shop, but not all if they're thinking that it's going to raise $9 million. You know, I, I, know, I know this is potentially insensitive, but I think it's the, the elephant in the room sometimes. Is just sometimes, especially when we talk about our diet, more money in our hand might not necessarily change the way we approach what we feed ourselves. So, and I know, I get it, this is completely insensitive, but this conversation is, I think, part of the strategy of reforming things like social assistance and what have you, is how do we ensure or do more to encourage doing better with the money you get versus simply having more money. Because there's lots of stuff and vices that I even spend my money on that even if I had more, doesn't mean I'm going to change my vices. So I know that can be a kind of cold conversation, but I think it's also important because even inside the social determinants of health, even if we put more money in your pocket, does that mean you're going to do better with that money? And as an end result, be healthier and make better options and choices? I don't know. No, and and that's a good it's a it's a, a good question to ask in terms of how do we uh, even if we, how do you encourage when it comes down to how do you encourage people to actively to actively choose those healthier uh, those healthier options how do you uh, how do you help people for that matter um, like, uh, like come up with 
build a healthy um, menu for their own home uh, based on the resources that they have. There are there are, there are a number of act, uh, initiatives along those lines, but uh, that uh, that I know that community groups have taken on community centers. Sorry, uh, but. I think there is a there is that part of it as well. Uh, it, it, you're right; putting more money in the pockets may not necessarily help. But I do know that the people like the, the for some of the, a lot of the people I've uh, who've called in, and I think of the uh, a few of the people who are diabetics. They're they're not they're not eating uh, the junk food, but uh, they're trying to they're trying to afford a healthy lifestyle just to manage their uh, their their own medical condition. So it will, and for some it will not, and for others, uh, you know. But I think we we'll capture more. people people along those uh, those lines. Oh, I think other, we will. I'm, I'm other, not other than just simply, as you say, putting the tax on it, and you're right, and, and putting the money, but there's got to be a concerted effort to push this, for sure. Uh, I do think more money in people's pockets will indeed have positive yeah. outcomes in large part. Yeah. It's just making sure that, you know, because we don't have a shortage of money, we have a distribution problem. Yep. And so making sure that any money out the door, whether it be from uh, my company to my pocket, from the government to your pocket, just making sure that the policy is also followed up with some comprehensive thought as to how it's intended to work and how we can ensure it works to its maximum positive potential. So totally agree. again, totally uh, agree with that, and and I think then and, and I think you and I are on the one word in that in terms of uh, it's it's how, where do we put that money? To me, I uh, like when I look at taxes, uh, it's it, it's paying for benefits that I want to see whether I uh, directly access them or not. So it comes down as where we put it, where are we putting that money to make sure it puts it has the biggest. Uh, uh, a bang uh, for the dollar, and has the, and has the positive outcomes that we all want to see in our health system and the health pe- uh, health of uh, our citizens. But I totally agree with you on that one, Patty. Appreciate the time this morning, Jim. Take care, sir. You too. Bye bye. It's Jim Din, NDP member for St. John Centre, the interim leader of his party. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number three. Linda, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I, w- I was wondering if you could give me um, the number for the lobsters. For the lobster dinner from the uh, the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church? Yes. I can do exactly that. It's 726. 726. Yes. Five, 53. Five, three. Eight, five. Eight, five. Yep. Thank you very much. You going to get a box? <laughs> I hope it will. <laughs> Good on you. Enjoy. Thank you. You're welcome, Linda. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. That was Mike Gillen who called on behalf of St. Andrews. So it was $75 a box, a couple of lobsters uh, inside, and all the fixings, whatever that might include. I'm not 100% sure. I probably should have asked. And a small bottle of wine to boot. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Paul Toomey. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Grant. How about you? No, not bad at all. Uh, I've heard when you were talking to Jim Dean, you were talking about weather clearing up off well environment canada tells me different so as a result we've uh, we postponed our bingo for tonight uh, the drive-in bingo which is a major fundraiser for the foundation so uh, just wanted to make sure everybody gets the word and don't show up to play because we're not going to be there well environment canada probably knows better than i do <laughs> <laughs> I would yeah think. i think I'm, I'm more concerned about the fact that it's uh, four degrees and misty and rainy and that's not good for the volunteers who are going to be out on the parking lot trying to sell Nevada tickets and uh, and uh, checking for bingos and all that sort of thing. So we're looking at their best interest, and uh, certainly we will be back. We will get our full 17 weeks in before uh, before the season is over. Uh, but next Wednesday night, uh, Jack Burn Arena parking lot, and we'll be back again with drive-in bingo. How's the turn up been? 
Pardon? How's the turnout been? Uh, first couple of weeks were kind of slow, but last week uh, it picked up uh, quite a bit. Uh, and I think prior to the to the to the twenty fourth or twenty fourth weekend, and that people had other things undermined. And uh, I ha- I have a feeling that uh, the gas prices are having an impact. It's uh, the kind of thing that hey, maybe you know that extra money for gas that I uh, that I have to use is going to cut into into bingo. But I just ask people to. Remember, it is a very important fundraiser for us, and it's, the money goes directly to support the programs and services that we offer. So we've got uh, 14 weeks left, and look for a good turnout. We've got a, a jackpot of $1,500 that goes every night, and an escalating jackpot that's uh, starting to climb a little bit, even after only three weeks. So, How many games do you play each night? We play 13 games in total. Okay. Uh, we start at 7.15. People are off the parking lot by quarter to ten most evenings. We open our gates at, uh, at six o'clock. Uh, so you just come into the building, you get your tickets, go back in your car, and you listen for the numbers on, on the radio system we have. And we're giving away every night over $3,000 in prizes. Sounds good. Well, it's cancelled for this evening, but it will resume next Wednesday, seven o'clock in the Jackburn Arena parking lot there in the town of Torbay. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Paul. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, there you go. No bingo. Well, none of that bingo tonight for the bingo goers. All right. Uh, good show today. Really appreciate the support the program gets, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.